Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood? In the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast for thefilmstage.com. As always, I'm your host, Brian J. Rowan, and with me today to sing the praises of First Reformed, we have Michael Snydell. Hello. Hello. And once again, joining us, our guest from the Tully episode, my wife, Genevieve Rowan. Hi, everyone. Glad to be back. Yeah, we are all here to talk about First Reformed. Uh, before we do that, uh, let me apologize. It has been a while since we've had an episode out. Um, we still exist. <laughs> a couple of reasons for that. One, uh, Michael Snydell wanted to see First Reformed again. And so we skipped a week. And then we also were going to do Manhunt, but we had terrible audio issues. Worse than usual. Uh, bad enough that I made the command decision just not to release the episode because that's how bad it was. And we have enough issues with appearing professional as it is without also releasing that. But we are back. We are better than ever, and we are here to talk about writer-director Paul Schrader's newest film starring Ethan Hawke and Amanda Seyfried, and that, of course, is First Reformed. Before we get into that, uh, follow us on Twitter, at Show, Facebook, The Film Stage Show, of course, thefilmstage.com. You can find all of our episodes, and you can email us, podcast at thefilmstage.com. What else? Uh, Patreon.com slash thefilmstageshow. If uh, you give as little as $1 an episode... You will get access to our Slack channel, special raffles, all that cool stuff. Money that helps us to put on this podcast and indeed create extra episodes, which uh, we promise will come out at some point. (laughs) (laughs) In the past, we have done classic Mm. reviews, and those are always super fun. Um, In fact, on that note, Mubi has a number of films that, uh, that relate to classic episodes that we've done. And that is uh, pretty interesting because we're actually brought to you today by Mubi, the online streaming cinema where every day they introduce a new film and you have 30 days to watch. Uh, One of the films is The Little Girl Who Sold the Sun by Jabril Diop Mbete, who did Tuki Buki, which we spoke about. In addition to that, Nostalgia by Andre Tarkovsky, who did Stalker, which we talked about. And um, a couple of other interesting films, Weekend by Andrew Haig. And following the first film by director Christopher Nolan. And those are just four of the daily 30 films that you have access to that you can watch on any streaming device or download to watch on the go. So if you would like to be able to get access to the awesomest curated streaming library on the internet, go to mubi.com slash filmstage for a free 30-day trial. Movie still doesn't have a tagline, so I still don't know how to end these commercials. 
better than sunscreen. Better than sunscreen. <laughs> Speaking of which, um, we're going on vacation again. <laughs> Woohoo! Uh, this coming weekend. Uh, so I don't know if we're going to be able to put out another episode next weekend. But lucky for all of you, right after this comes out, we're going to have another episode drop pretty much almost immediately. And that will be a review of The Tale, the film that just premiered on HBO last night. We'll be recording that tomorrow. So, one that I've heard is just as uplifting as this one. Oh, oh yeah. definitely. <laughs> oh my god. We we're not gonna we're not gonna we're not gonna discuss the tale. But for anyone who's interested, uh, powerful film. Do not watch it with your family. Anything anything you'd like to add, my love? Oh, I just loved us sitting in complete silence for, and I clocked it at some point. It was exactly nine minutes that we went without speaking about that movie immediately upon its ending, that we just sat in our living room and stared at the walls for nine whole minutes. So, yeah, I, I would second that. This is not a, uh, a family film. It is not about a tale, like a T-A-I-L. It is, unfortunately, a, a story. So it's not. And what a story. Yeah, what not, a story it not is. a fun family film about tales. Just, just a heads up. <laughs> yeah. But uh, looking forward to watching it. Michael, you haven't watched it yet? No. I, soon after this. We're recording that episode in like 14 hours. Well, I have 14. Well, I probably have like 12 hours. Cause yeah, because we're going to record this one. This one. <laughs> I, I will make it happen. Well, if he started it immediately after we finished recording, he could watch it a total of like six times before he has to talk about it. So, I mean, I feel like he's doing okay. Look, we, we don't want Michael oh, killed. My. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's move on. Um, we are here today to review the <sighs> film First Reformed, which is out now in limited release. And it is starring Ethan Hawke, Amanda Seyfried, Cedric the Entertainer, and Cedric uh, Kyle, who was wonderful, <laughs> who you did not recognize until the movie was over. This is true, yes. As well as uh, Philip Ettinger and Michael Gaston, who you may recognize from The Leftovers. It is written and directed by Paul Schrader and is released by Michael's favorite film releasing company, A24. I think that's an inside joke that's like... Only on Slack at that this point, but well, all you know seventeen what? of those people will now know. <laughs> anyway, here is the trailer. I have decided to keep a journal to set down all my thoughts and the simple events of my day. I will keep this diary for one year, and at the end of that time, it will be destroyed. my son to enlist. It was a family tradition. Six months later, he was dead in Iraq. I was lost. My sense the reading of the Lord. Praise be God. All right, that was the trailer for First Reformed. And um, how best to summarize this movie? Uh, Ethan Hawke plays a former military chaplain who is now in charge of the First Reformed Church, which is a nearly 250-year-old church. I believe I have that time frame right. Yes, that's correct. Okay, good. You two both saw this movie more recently than I did, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be leaning on you both. And um, on the eve of its 250th anniversary, a parishioner comes uh, asking for his help with her husband, 
who is undergoing a existential crisis because of environmental concerns. And the rest of the story spins out from there. So let's give our brief, concise thoughts on this movie, and then uh, we can we can talk about it. So Michael Snydell, let's start off with you. What are your thoughts on First Reformed? Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, First Reformed is... Uh... It's really good. It's <laughs> it's probably my favorite movie of 2018, a movie where I haven't really liked movies that much. Um, so I, I guess the best way to put this is that um, briefly, I, and in as concise a fashion as possible, I, I like that this is a movie that uh, deliberately and poignantly wrestles with, a, with faith and... Um, the ego of someone's conscience of what it means to be a priest and try to trying to counsel other people while also recognizing the ridiculousness of this. So this is a film that in many ways feels comparable to its influences. If you've ever talked about him, uh, his love for past film, he's mentioned uh, Bresson and Berkman and at times, this does resemble Bergman and Brisson, but it's also a much more uh, modern and uh, hallucinogenic and um, just uh, relevant, just really funny film. <laughs> and I'm I think glad. that's the best place to start. Yeah, I, I'm and, glad and that you also many, decided to throw the descriptor funny in there, because I feel like... That's something that we can't let slip. It was uncomfortably humorous at times. Like, I wasn't ever sure that it was, like, okay or acceptable to laugh, but it was, it, it's so, it's so weirdly funny. All right. Well, why don't you tell us your thoughts, uh, Genevieve Rowan? Yeah, and you can over-enunciate brief and concise all you want, but at the end of the day, I'm your wife and I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. And if you have a problem with that, you can fight me in the front yard. Welcome so, to marriage, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I uh, I recently saw this movie for the second time. I saw it on Friday at one of my favorite movie houses in D.C. The first time I was with you know Brian uh, at the Maryland Film Festival. Um, I'm really glad that I saw this movie twice before I got the opportunity to talk about it. Because it's it, it cannot be overstated how visually striking and beautiful that this movie is. And upon the first viewing, I really found myself like kind of lost in the beautifully crafted shots of this whole movie and like the way that it ramps up like with the conclusion and the visual storytelling that happens like so seamlessly. And upon the second viewing, I got to really lean into the emotional impact that this movie had on me. I was really worried initially after my first viewing that I wouldn't have a whole lot to say about it um, outside of the way that it looked and upon seeing it a second time, I realized that I kind of just like retreated inwardly <laughs> after seeing it initially. And it wasn't that I didn't have anything to say, but rather that I was just kind of caught up in all of the places that this movie hit for me. Um, I think it is a a riveting and beautiful and unflinchingly apolo- unapologetic tale of the struggle of faith. I think it paints a very honest picture of Protestantism specifically. Um, 
Ethan Hawke's performance is probably one of the best that I've ever seen from him, and I, I have so much love for Ethan Hawke. He seems to only be getting better with age, which is a serious statement. Um, but yeah, I, I would agree with you fully, Michael. This is probably the best film that I've seen this year. Um, it's definitely, like I would say, in the top three for me, if not the number one spot. Um, I would encourage literally everyone to see this movie. I think that the story that it tells is not in any way ambiguous, but there are so many areas that it touches on that are going to speak to people differently that there is no one in existence who couldn't gain something from seeing this movie. And that is like a really big deal. I think. Was that brief enough? Yeah, that was, I was actually just about to congratulate both on both of you on uh, your briefness and conciseness. Well, you're then you just want to record this alone? We, we could just kick Brian out. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just have, we'll have a first reformed love fest. We'll both speak forever and it'll be great. It'll be a four-hour long podcast. Well, with me here, uh, we can all continue to gush and have a first reformed love fest. It'll just be slightly longer because there'll be another person talking. Um, I don't... Uh, I, I, this is probably my favorite movie of the year so far. I I only struggle with that because I can't remember most of the movies I've seen this year. Same. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, this has been a weird year for movies. I feel like most of them have not been great, and um, that's kind of now that's bringing me down. So I'm just gonna focus on first before. First of all. <laughs> You know, never. I, I I love Paul Schrader. He's always doing something interesting. Even uh, the Canyons, which is the movie that he did on Kickstarter with Brett Easton Ellis, I stand up for. Really enjoy that film. Um, obviously, like Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, classics uh, that he did with Martin Scorsese, and this movie is everything that you expect from him in a way that you aren't quite expecting it. Um, the packaging, I guess, is is very different. And I guess the tone is a little different, but like the ideas are still there and the way he approaches everything is still there. And um, yeah, that weird, strange, dark humor that runs through the movie is is just like, you know, a chef's kiss. It's beautiful. It's, it's, oh, it's so amazing. And, you know, anyone who's listened to this podcast for long enough knows that I'm always down for a movie that wrestles with religion. Um, that's one of the reasons that Silence is still a movie that like I go back to in my brain just about every day. And uh, that's another reason why I love the movies of Terrence Malick. And so this movie is right up my alley, and it does everything that I want a movie that is not religious, but instead about religion to do. And um, yeah, man, I mean, Seyfried is great. Ettinger is great. Hawk is great. Cedric the Entertainer is great. And um He's so fun in this. Like he's just he's so like surprisingly fun. <laughs> I don't think I was at all ready for him to be in this movie. <laughs> yeah, and this um I don't know, it's just it's just an all around like a really a really fantastic movie that like sometimes threatens to tip into like histrionics and yet never quite gets there which is good it's it it's weird how it balances it's like apocalyptic and then it's darkly funny and then it's like deep introverted kind of moral interrogation 
without I think without getting into spoilers, I think like briefly something you can point out to maybe give the audience who hasn't seen this a little sense of that. I, I think there's a great interplay with um so uh, so uh, again, as, as Brian was kind of saying, like this movie is deeply interested in kind of having some of these larger conversations. But like Schrader is seemingly also clever enough to know that you don't have to always show the whole conversation and you have to bring in the skeptics as well. So the ways it plays with, you know, Ethan Hawke's inner monologue, for instance, even before anything has happened narratively, I think is such a reason why that balance exists that you're talking about, Brian. Like the very fact that it can recognize that sometimes these conversations could so easily be pretentious, but even the priest is recognizing that the way that he's talking about it, uh, yeah, has has a level of like parody to it. And in that way, the movie feels very novelistic. Um, when I was a child and I was first learning to write narrative, I made the mistake that I think many young writers do, wherein they don't know where to cut and where to condense. So a story would begin with the main character waking up. And then I would walk them through their entire morning routine because how else are my readers going to know that this person has brushed their teeth? <laughs> and, you know, I have them get in the car and then I have them driving and then I have them getting where they're going. And then every fucking thing that this person says is in quotes. And as time goes on, as a writer, you learn that you can have the opening of a conversation and then dip into the third or first person narration to say... Our conversation traveled from, you know, how we were at work to what was going on. And then finally we got to the issue of Samantha being murdered. And like, then you can, <laughs> then you can dip back in, you can dip back into the quotes to get all the really important stuff out. And this movie has a similar thing because this is a lot of conversations in a movie and it's very intelligent in the way it kind of uses his diary and his inner monologue you know, as written through that diary to like make those bridges and also inform this character's specific interiority in that way, which I love. Yeah, no, it's, it's really artfully done. Um, I, this is like a really like dumb nitpicky thing with me, but I pretty much as a rule really dislike, um, exposition like in terms of like a a narrator like reading something that they have written or like recording themselves and their inner thoughts i don't know why exactly that is i haven't interrogated a lot over the years but it does feel a little bit like overindulgent um from like the uh the filmmaker's perspective like it seems like they're being just a little bit too like omniscient um First Reform doesn't really have this problem like ethan hawks <laughs> ethan hawks journal is probably the it at times like the funniest and also like the most existentially horrifying part of this movie. Um, it's, it's so well done that it's honestly like to think about it in retrospect is just, I'm still like kind of get chills thinking about some of the things that he has written or just like giggling, like profusely remembering like weird snippets of internal dialogue in this film. Um, so if you are like me and super weird and neurotic and have a problem with uh, omniscient exposition, First Reformed is not going to be an issue for you. Well, and I think, I think one of the reasons for that, <clears throat> at least in my mind, is the fact that the diary almost allows him to become a character that interacts with himself. 
um, without getting into spoilers, uh, he will write something and then immediately chastise himself through his writing. Oh yeah. So he'll he'll use a word and then he'll pause and then he'll immediately say, "I hate the fact that I just used the word that I used." But because uh, I said that I would leave everything as is, I guess I got to hang out with it. And that kind of, it's a very writerly choice. And that is something that can become a crutch. But I think that um, there's there's a hacky piece of screenwriting philosophy that um, I think actually gets called out in Adaptation. Uh, that's like you shouldn't use voiceover it's lazy and mm-hmm. i think paul schrader has consistently proved that it can be lazy but like anything that lazy people do a true artist can do it and make it meaningful and this is just like a whole other a whole other moment where that is true well i think it's well, that's that's really interesting you point that because i i, I have also seen it second uh, two times and on, on my second time i became aware uh, with what Jen was kind of referring to is that like the clarity and the the funniness of those journals, but just how that contrasts with the sense of time, which is at once like gives you a few markers about what's coming and what's potentially going on, but also manages to make the journal feel both unreliable and totally consuming like it's 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 a very strange play on the voiceover when you think of the voiceover it's meant as as you're saying brian like it's a crutch and a cliche it's an easy way to get through uh or sorry to communicate something about a protagonist's uh inner inner vision or to just you know get over a narrative bump that would otherwise be difficult and he seems to make it he exasperates the difficulty of this story by keeping it um, by seeming like he's telling a more sober story than he is. <laughs> Does that make any? Yeah, I, I'm struggling with words a little bit. To make <laughs> a more difficult to create movie by choosing to have the voiceover. Like he opted into like a real feat of filmmaking. Well, yeah, because you know. A lot of times there's there's if you're on Twitter for any amount of time, you'll see people making fun of voiceovers in movies by like posting a photo of someone and then saying like record scratch freeze frame. And then it'll be like, that's me. You're probably wondering how I got here. And then it's like in a movie that'll happen and it'll be like 10 minutes of this is my brother. He's pretty cool, but this is my dad, and he doesn't think that we should be skateboarders. But this is Kara, and she's my girlfriend, but I don't like her that much. But there's, like, Jessica, who's been my friend since the eighth grade, and she's been really weird recently, and I don't know why. And it's just, it is a person explaining their story to you in a way that sucks. Though, oddly enough, this is a tangent, uh, I just watched Ratatouille again for the other day. That movie does that exact same thing, but it's super great, which just once again goes to prove my point about artists being able to do the lazy thing really well but this movie isn't him explaining anything it's not him trying to help you into his world more it is him battling with his own world and the way he sees things and therefore like i said it becomes like an adversary and that's an intelligent way to go that is that is super smart especially just i guess to kind of move us away from just talking about how great this movie is in terms of its format um 
given everything that happens and the tremendous amount of tension that this movie creates through its basic plot, which is that a woman in his uh, congregation played by Amanda Seyfried, whose character name is Mary, symbolically, um, she comes and says that her husband, Michael, has become a like really hardcore environmentalist and doesn't think now that she is pregnant that they should bring a child into the world because the world is going to end very soon. And it's interesting how they approach that from both a pragmatic environmental kind of tone and then how they fold in the existential into that and then even fold in like the concept of like the religious necessity of stewardship of God's creation. Like this movie is just it's fucking great. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it it took like literally every single side that it, it could have possibly taken and discussed it. Not I, like you were saying, Michael, that it doesn't feel the need to show the entirety of the conversation to still feel as though it is like started and you know finished an adequate one. Um, and. I was just like blown away by how many doors this film opened for like interpretations about what it it's truly saying or like what the most important aspect is or what the most important takeaway is without ever actually like resolving any of those conversations that started, but still feeling like a complete work. Um, I, I honestly, I'm not sure like now thinking about it, which I feel was like the most compelling argument or view that it presented um it was (laughs) it was amazing to watch it seemed like it hit almost every single um element of like my personal background and so I kind of was like wrestling with myself the whole time watching it like not totally sure how I wanted to think about some of the issues that it presented or like how I felt about these characters and their decisions but it was just done so well (laughs) that I didn't feel like uh, I was lost at any point or like it, it gave me as like an audience member too much to think about um, so that I was taken out of the narrative entirely. I was still very much involved in the story and the evolution of the film, but still like constantly wrestling with like, Oh Jesus Christ. Like there's so much to unpack here. Uh, it was, it was, it was, it's just so fucking good. You guys like, it's so fucking good. <laughs> We're just going to collapse and say that every yeah, now and then I'll say the only, the only side that isn't, given any, like, I guess, due consideration or, like, fair shrift is uh, corporations, which I'm fine with. Yeah. Fuck corporations, come on. (laughs) Um, Since we're probably going to get into the themes and everything, uh, I wanted to ask, uh, Michael, we've talked about religion on this this episode, on this podcast quite a bit. I think everyone out there who listens regularly knows that I'm a lapsed to practicing Catholic... Um, Those are two opposing words. Yeah, I like teeter between the two of them. I definitely believe in everything. I just like sometimes have trouble getting to church. So there you go. Yeah, um, all right. I'm not. I'm not a great Catholic. I I try, but like it's hard to get out every weekend when you have a daughter um, who does not like people singing. No, she's deeply opposed. Two people singing. She loves music, but the second you try and sing along, she has like a small breakdown. It's so funny. Yeah, I actually, I, I did take her to church the other week, and 
this is this is pointless. This has nothing to do with anything. No. But um, <laughs> but the second that the choir started singing, she just like she pouted and her eyes got really big and she just started softly weeping. <laughs> <laughs> so she just gets miserable. She's not like throwing a fit. She just hates it. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like it's like she's getting yelled at. I just don't know. Anyway, um, she's a funny kid. Then, <laughs> she's a very funny child. And uh. Jen, uh, I think I've brought this up on the podcast before, but I'll give you the opportunity to expound. You uh, were raised Protestant, but have since turned from that. Yes. Hard left. Yeah. Yeah, No, um, I have embraced uh, Satan. Um, That's not true. I'm sorry. (laughs) I just just love saying that. Uh, No, so I I am a practicing witch. I guess, like, the the easiest and most specific way to say it, for those of you who are familiar with witchcraft as a religion rather than a specific practice, is that I am a solitary eclectic white witch, or right-hand witch, depending on the terminology you prefer to use. However, um, for the first 18 years of my life, I was raised as a Protestant Christian. I grew up in the Bible Belt. Um, Specifically, I was uh, in the Church of Christ denomination, which, if you aren't familiar with that one, I tend to tell people is the one without music. Um, So Cora would dig it. But yeah, no, it's a, it's an incredibly conservative, incredibly strict denomination of Protestantism um, that I did eventually break from completely around 18, but I, I lost my faith, I guess, is the best way to say it, when I was around 14. And for anyone who thinks of witchcraft and then thinks of that scene in Macbeth, um, would you like to like give an idea of what you're actually all about? Can we just say, like, uh, you're really into nature? Oh, yeah. So, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's mostly just a very fancy way of saying that I am a pagan nature worshiper. Um, that's that's pretty much all it is. Um, I am definitely uh, theistic. Um, I don't necessarily uh, subscribe to the idea of an afterlife um, or sin. I... Uh, Technically, I I guess I'm polytheistic, um, but I guess in the way that someone who is um, agnostic but doesn't really know which place to throw their lot in with um, might be considered polytheistic. Like, if you can't pick one, then all of them are right, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I'm rambling. I think that God is a many-sided coin, and all world religions are different interpretations of one single truth, and rather than nitpick with people and think that it's fine to hate each other based on very arbitrary and minute differences of of thinking, I just kind of jump over all of that and say that um, I'm going to pray to trees and burn some sage when I get weird feelings. I carry rocks in my pocket, and you guys can all go fuck yourselves. <laughs> and that's that's about where I land in terms of religion. Um, I just, well, uh, my only point in bringing this up was, A, to give your background in Protestantism, but also, B, to let people know that nature is very important to you. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. Um, okay, so yeah, I- <laughs> Michael Snydell. <laughs> Why don't you give us a brief rundown of whatever religious background and current practices you have as a context for our discussion about this movie? I wasn't fully prepared for the question. I I felt a little put on the spot. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, Michael, your turn. I I didn't actually know that's what... um, So it's... All right. 
I'm going to say something dumb. Is Wiccan and witchcraft, are those the same thing, or am I off? You're so lucky you're not in the room with her right now. <laughs> oh, no, 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 Sorry. That's, this is, um, this is, that's a very good question. Um, it is one that I get incredibly often. Uh, so thank you so much for not phrasing it like, doesn't that just make you Wiccan? Because that's what I normally get, and that's what gets me uh, just fighting mad um so she's so, also a texan yeah a little bit so <laughs> fighting man um witchcraft is a um a physical practice in addition to being a religion and just like every religion there are multiple interpretations um or denominations of it rather that's not typically the word that is used within um sex of witchcraft but that's basically like a good way to like think about it so like in christianity you have like baptists you have catholics you have church of christ you have you know all this you know shit witchcraft is no different you have druidic witches you have dyadic witches um and then you you know you have wiccans what wicca is is essentially like um a new age rebirth of the ancient goddess uh oriented practice of witchcraft that came about around the 60s um i do not identify as wiccan I have a very long and unnecessary soapbox about it. Um, I definitely don't hold anything against Wiccans. It's just very much not for me. I tend to keep theologically much more with uh, the shamanistic interpretation of witchcraft, um, kind of what I call like the original copy. In terms of practice, um, you know, I, I'm Norwegian and Irish. I tend to kind of keep to more like New England um, like early American traditions, uh, and I, I, I love me some Norse mytholo- Norse mythology. Um, I speak Norwegian, you know. Just fun fact. <laughs> That's why you were also such a what's the word I'm looking for asset to have during our talk about the witch. Even yeah, though you were not on that episode. No, I wasn't on that episode. But no, that was um that was very well done. Uh, horrifyingly so. It was actually very uncomfortable to watch because I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, no, that's the thing. Um. <laughs> But anyway, enough, anyway uh, yeah. enough pushing off. Michael, tell us about your god. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you pray to, Michael? No one can know the mind of God. Um, you know, I uh, I feel like I've talked about this in a few different episodes, Princess Sid maybe most recently. Uh, I went to Catholic school for middle school and high school. Uh, I pretty early on... Um, decided Catholicism, Christianity weren't necessarily for me. I don't, I, I guess I do label myself agnostic and atheistic depending on the day. It's usually atheism. Um, and there were a variety of reasons. Uh, it was especially growing up around a lot of, um, queer people and seeing how the church treated them. It was also just a dissatisfaction. I, I had, with organized religion and things like that. Now, with that said, um, I have consistently, even as I, even on the days I call myself the stoutest atheist, uh, I have a strong interest in spirituality and watching films, especially about religion. For instance, I could have only watched if this movie didn't become something more. Uh, I, I, I we're still not in spoilers. Exciting. I'll, I'll just say exciting. <laughs> Didn't Once, become it, something. It does at some point leave the purely sure. like metaphysical, it, like existential, conversational realm and enter into like outward action. I, I almost just said action. Sure. I don't want people to think that Ethan Hawke <laughs> is like wielding a gun and running up the sides of buildings. Yeah. No. 
Yeah, it's not Taxi Driver. It's just written by the person who wrote Taxi Driver. <laughs> okay, but what I, what I'll say is that, like, for instance, I found it endlessly fascinating just watching, for instance, uh, Reverend Toller, played by Ethan Hawke, just navigating talking to his parishioners. I think that's incredibly fascinating, the way that people who are in religious professions, whether they're priests, whether they're reverends, whatever they are, the ways that they talk to people of the faith and not of the faith, um, perhaps because, again, I spent a lot of time around priests and things. And let me tell you, being an altar server for a few years, uh, priests are fucking awkward people. They're just awkward people. Um, so I, I think every experience I've ever had with a priest. Well, I mean, I've only really been around the one that we at our parish, um, I swear to God, this dude was like 12. Um, I thought he was an altar boy. No lie, because I know jack shit about Catholicism. So and then I saw he, this fucking kid. And then he got up, read yeah. the gospel, and gave the homily. And you were just like, he's the priest. He was like this weirdly charming, like 13-year-old bespeckled kid who was just like, hey, guys, did you like want to learn about some Jesus today? And I was like, what the fuck is this dude? I love him so much. Yeah, no, I wanted to like bake him a pie. It was great. Was there a church band that sounded like you two and Bruce Springsteen had an unholy child together as well? Okay. She makes him sound like one of those (laughs) preachers who like does a skateboard and says shit every now and then. He is not like that. No, he was, it was just, he was, he was very, he was much younger and, um, I'm so sorry, Brian. He was cooler than I expected. (laughs) But he wasn't as cool as the the priest up in uh, New York. No, that guy was the shit, man. Guy speaks with a real heavy Queens accent. And he he said, um, what was it? It was Easter. And he's like, I want to leave you with an I want to leave you with an image of hell and bees. And it was just like, oh, okay. Cool. And then anyway, you're talking about so artichokes. Obviously, <laughs> all over the East Coast, priests are better than the ones in Chicago. So yeah, that's suck it, Chicago. That's what we're getting at. So, <laughs> every experience I've ever had with a priest has actually been like hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Michael. Apparently, <laughs> I need to come to the you know, East Coast. At our end of the world country yeah come to dc i'll take you to church this is the most awkward invitation to anything ever um yeah my point though yeah to get back on um yeah like i I will say that this is right in my right in my wheelhouse and especially like these dialectics that go back and forth between you know is there an angel or a devil on my shoulder which one should i listen to like that that stuff's like catnip for me it really is um like these types of morality tales but um yeah i guess i i want to talk about this more in spoilers so i can get specific but yeah like there's a lot of movies like this but so few of them are able to um, so carefully toe the line between like taking this really seriously and also, um, you know, pointing out how sometimes ridiculous it, it, it can be. I keep using the word ridiculous apparently. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if that answered your question, Brian. Yeah, no, I, this took so much longer than I was expecting. I just wanted us each to give a context for our conversation about this. Cause I didn't want people at home to think, Oh, here's three atheists talking about a movie that deals with Christianity. Like, we have a Catholic, a former Protestant turned witch, and an atheist agnostic former Catholic. 
So you want me to say God's lit is what you're saying, just like that priest would say? Uh, that's right. <laughs> there is one of those fucking guys in this movie. There is the type of person that Chen made yeah. our priest sound like. Oh, my. F- oh, so and again, because this is apparently the podcast of tangents, because I, <laughs> I grew up uh, Protestant. I, you know, I, I taught Sunday school for a few years and I was very heavily involved in my youth group. Um which is like, I, I, I have such a negative um, opinion of my personal time um, in Protestant churches. So like, well, I'll have to be constantly troubleshooting that throughout this because I really do have to navigate some of that toxicity that's within me. But um, it's essentially where like, you know, you have like young adolescents who are incredibly impressionable being led by a younger, usually male, he's often married, um, typically like early to mid 20s um member of the church who's there to like guide them specifically uh tends to be like kind of like separate and still like entangled with the rest of the con- uh, congregation but it's all about like meeting with people on your you know in your own age group and like on your own level spend a lot of time doing that and if i had a fucking nickel for every single fucking time i had had to deal with someone like this dude that Brian is talking about in this movie, this fucking tattooed Jesus loves you little son of a bitch. Like I, I would, I would be able to pay our fucking mortgage. Like I, those, uh, it's like, it's like if you were to slit their throat, they would bleed pure evangelism and it would just piss you off more. It's just, Oh, it's like my palms are sweating. Like I was watching this and I'm like this, I'm like this guy. Like, I just want to like fucking find this actor and punch him in the fucking face. Like it made me hate him on a personal level for saying yes to this role. I had like a visceral reaction to it. So (laughs) all that to say, that is not the kind of person <laughs> that my sweet priest at the parish that we frequent is like, because that just upsets me. I will say <laughs> that in terms of this movie and how it looks at religion, I do, without getting into spoilers, I love the way that it satirizes the corporatization and the like memification and attempted trendiness of like larger churches. And it's, that's usually a pretty easy fucking target, but I feel like this sure. movie does it without seeming angry or mean about it. Like, does that make sense? Like, it'd be really easy for yeah. like Will Ferrell and Adam McKay to get together and make a, a like a really mean spirited comedy about a mega church. Yeah. Sure. Whereas this one, still like, even even we're not you know we're not in spoilers yet, but even when people kind of like sell their soul a little bit for corporate interests. Like you can still feel their faith still there. Like Cedric, the entertainer, the tattooed Jesus freak, younger youth pastor, like sure. they're, they're not painted as being like opportunistic assholes who really do only care about money. Like I'm sure many mega church people are, but like, I like the fact that in this specific case, in this movie, they do seem to be people who, have good intentions, but like may have gotten too wrapped up in the economics sure. of their their situation. Well, Cedric the Entertainer has a really great line in, about that specifically. That I, again, this is another really great example. I think of um, Schrader like starting conversations that will get you talking after the movie, but not feeling the need to finish them like in the runtime of the movie itself, where he says something like to the equivalent of like, you know, you need to start living in the real world if you want to be in the business of saving lives. 
And like, that's a very nuanced, very easy argument to be made for um, like the mass evangelism that goes behind um, mega churches, because like, it's, it is very easy for it to become um, like business oriented and corporate like, but at the end of the day, like I feel if you're able to remember that if you believe that you have the truth and the cure for a disease that someone has, and then you feel morally obligated to share that cure with as many people as possible, then you're going to have to do whatever it takes to make it as widely as accessible as possible. And I think the thing that kind of like plagues, um, mega churches in general in both real life and in this film is um keeping that idea of like um the the cure disease dichotomy um at the forefront of your mind but i feel like cedric the entertainer's character does a really good job of of being upfront and honest about that he's like you know hey look like i know what this looks like but i need you to know like what it is in reality and i thought that was a really like intelligent very short-lived conversation about that that was very fair and representative I think Esther as well, uh, the character played by Victoria Hill, who is also at, a, at Abundant Life, that megachurch, is, is also a character who could very easily be a caricature. But her mm-hmm. her worry for Ethan Hawke's character, l- like Cedric the Entertainer, I think, is also given like a, a pragmatism and, and like given um, an, an emotional element that isn't about her. You know, like she's not aware of what's going on inside Ethan Hawke's head, but like she doesn't only feel um, she doesn't only feel like, you know, she's gristle for the movie to make a larger point. I agree. Yeah. No. Yes. Though. Well, okay. Let's, I was going to say something. About we should this. probably get in. We should just do spoilers. I, I think now. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, a believer Catholic a former Protestant turned witch and a lapsed Catholic turned agnostic atheist all agree first reformed is an incredibly good, incredibly well-made outstandingly acted deeply intelligent time at the movies. So head out to your local cinemaplex and, uh, and check it out. It is out now. And uh, now we're going to talk spoilers. So this movie goes some places. Oh, it does. Um, that that scene where Michael and uh, and Reverend Toller have their like first and really only conversation, yeah, is oh is a powerhouse in acting. And um, mm. we were actually the screening we went to at the Maryland Film Festival had the actor who played Michael there. Oh, really? Yeah, he he took an Uber from, was he in Philly? I think he was in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, yeah. He took an Uber from Pittsburgh to Baltimore because his plane broke down on the runway. Jeez. So he's actually like a super fucking cool dude. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I guess so is that Uber driver because he took him. I mean, Um, he he must have not been doing jack shit that day. That is a long drive. But yeah, yeah, he is Philip Ettinger. He was in compliance and uh, indignation. And, um, yeah, he was talking about that scene and something that we, we actually haven't brought up. Uh, this movie is in four, three. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is, uh, you know, it's, it was the type of thing. It's an aspect ratio that I see. So f- like few films shot in that when I saw the, the curtains begin to close and then stop, I was like, Oh no, something has gone wrong. <laughs> 
but no, first performed, shot in four three. Uh, Especially American films these days. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean this um, that whole scene with them, and then just where it goes from there, and like the way the way that the movie kind of blindsides you with um, Michael's eventual suicide, and then very like methodically leads up to. We're in spoilers now. Uh, Reverend Toller planning on donning the suicide vest himself is just like I could feel it happening, but it was just so well done that every moment I was just like, no, but he has to, but no, but he won't, but he has to. <laughs> and that's that's like just some fucking damn fine filmmaking, like all all other existential you know, intellectual concerns aside, like the movie is just a study in like tension and, and empathy. It's super good. <laughs> yeah, no, that the, the, the dialogue scene between Reverend Toller and Michael, like I, again, like how I, uh, upon my first viewing, like I was really caught up in just how goddamn steady this camera is like punishingly steady throughout this movie until the final scene where it spins wildly. Um, and from what I've read, that's a pretty, that is like a marker of the transcendental film making style. Yes. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, not necessarily the spinning camera, but like the, the steady tracking shots. Like, yeah, definitely. It is, it is okay. For sure. Um, I took one single semester of film in college <laughs> years ago. So my only claim to fame is that I'm married to someone who actually knows what they're talking about. So, yeah, um, so upon my first viewing, I was just, like, really, like, caught up in just, like, how punishingly still the camera is, and so through that whole scene, I, it was just, it was so close to Michael's face, who just looks distraught and tired, and just, he he looks like he hasn't had water in days, and you will be pleased to know he doesn't look like that in real life, he's he's actually a very, like, kind, welcoming, and, like, healthy-looking man, um, so he <laughs> he didn't actually die for this role. But on my on my second viewing, um, I was moved to tears in that scene. Um, granted, not difficult these days. I'm generally a very weepy woman. I I have like two modes, and it's crying or maniacal laughter. Um, but even so, I uh, and, and I could tell that it wasn't even just like the pure anxiety and like the crushing sense of knowing what was going to happen because I'd already seen it, but still really not wanting it to happen and really believing that maybe this time it wouldn't coupled with how fucking well acted that was on part of both Philip Ettinger and Ethan Hawke. And just like how beautifully written it was. Like it was just, it felt like I was watching like the world's most complex and beautiful piece of music played by the world's best musicians. And I was just like, so proud of everyone involved that I got like this weird, like swell of like maternal pride. And I was just like, wow, you, you did it. Like, congratulations. <laughs> and, uh, it was, it's probably one of the most compelling scenes that I have ever seen in any movie. Um, in addition to just being part of a, a larger, better whole, um, it was just it there was there was so much in there that I actually like I felt so vulnerable after watching it the first time that um I waited because he did like a, Philip Ettinger showed up to do like a Q and A which is why he'd driven from you know Pittsburgh to Baltimore um 
I like had a question for him that I didn't feel comfortable asking a room full of people because it boiled down to basically if you were Michael, would you have killed yourself? Um, I dressed it up a little bit more and I was a little bit more specific, but I was afraid that it would be interpreted that way. And Brian and I were talking about the movie and, you know, my my question and my read on it as we were walking out. And I didn't even realize it, but he looped all the way around the theater and drug me to Philip Ettinger to ask, to have me ask him my question, like in private, because he really wanted to know what this dude said. <laughs> <laughs> and so I didn't know where we were going because I'd never been in this theater. And then suddenly like this actor was in front of me and he's like, hi, I'm Brian. This is my wife, Jen. She has a question for you. <laughs> I have crippling social anxiety. This was not fun for me, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, he's a, uh, he's, He's a nifty dude who is really cool about about me floundering. Um. And like the reason the reason that I think um, the reason that I, I went up and asked him that is because like this does feel like a movie where the the answers given by everyone involved are so compelling and and meaningful and like well thought out that it does kind of become a it's it's like a weird treatise on like how even the most well-argued point can meet a well-argued point that argues against it and then there's just like an intractable inertia that occurs because everything that Reverend Toller says you know for all of his faults for all of his drinking and his his antipathy towards certain people like when it comes down to brass tacks he can make a well-reasoned argument from both a theological and like a more existential, just humanist point of view. And so I did, I wanted to ask the question of the actor, like, you know, how did you feel about like the answers you were getting? Because I can only imagine like reading this script and just being like, man, everyone has such a point of view and it's so good. And it just like, it, it makes his eventual suicide that much more heartbreaking because you know that he is, getting good advice and good answers but you know the despair is just that deep and i don't know i don't know michael if you had that that same kind of reaction to it like did you feel like did, <laughs> would you have killed yourself yeah i mean that's i again like and whenever i asked like philip i phrased it more as did you feel that the answers that reverend reverend toller gave were adequate and reassuring or had you been in Michael's shoes, would you have felt more of a sense of despair than hope? This yeah, is so certainly you, a trap and we're taking me back to our conversation about Nocturama where I said that I agree with the terrorists. So, um, <laughs> any chance okay. to get Michael Snydell to say that he agrees with the terrorist or attempted terrorist is just what I'm going to do. I want sure. a t-shirt. Yeah, I no, I think... Terrorists, Michael <laughs> Snydell of Chicago. I, every once in a while. <laughs> Wait, that's not better. All right. Um, <laughs> oh, God, I'm definitely going to be in a courtroom someday. Okay. Um, I, yeah, I, 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 that, that scene... Yeah, I, both times I watched that, I, I mean, I, I have to... I have to admit, I was especially, especially this time. I was actually thinking about the form of um, how how still and how much this conversation is not elevated cinematically. It, it's just everybody is able to talk. The camera moves to the next person, and even like the first thirty minutes of this film, as I, I generally mentioned, is like 
it's a lot of still shots. It's a lot of like slow pans. Even the first shot is like this, you know, slow zoom and then like clean cuts to like different parts of this church. Like it's such a like weirdly, um, it's such a weirdly like structured way to view this film. Um, but yeah, as, as far as that exact conversation, I think that there is, um, I, I do really like that this film is both can be on the inside and outside of depression in the sense that you do hear as we already talked about how Cedric, uh, Kyle's character, um, or excuse me, how Cedric the Entertainer's character is, um, you know, it, it is a person who's trying to say about a larger purpose. And when you're a character or when you're a person like Reverend Toller, you start believing that the only purpose in the world is, you know, like what Michael's saying and, and what he's saying about the environment being destroyed and and uh, how, why in the world would you want to bring a child into a place that is, you know, you know, that, that it's a losing battle. Um, and, and those are things that absolutely uh, not appeal to me, I, but I recognize them as someone who doesn't know if they want to have children, but, or I should say goes back and forth and, um, who is at a point where like, Oh, I'm about to get into the next <laughs> segment of my life and I need to make a choice. So there were, so I, my point is that I, uh, I definitely was feeling something about that conversation. But again, I like that this movie kind of continually reminds you of the real world and that at a certain point, some of that despair that you have, um, it can be toxic. And the fact that it doesn't pick either of those answers is what perhaps makes this film um, so appealing to me on like an elemental level. The other thing that's kind of fantastic about this film that I only really just realized thinking about it now is the way that it um, has like a bell curve of the enormity of the stakes involved. It begins with Amanda Seyfried's character, Mary coming up and saying that her husband has like fallen into despair about the environment, but her immediate concern is that he wants her to have an abortion. Um, yeah. Which she, she frames as uh, killing her baby. And so you start off with that and it's just this woman and her child. And then it moves up to worrying about the entirety of the human race and the future of nature and the globe. And then it kind of, lives in that for a bit before really hardcore ratcheting back down into like a battle for the soul of this, you know, this, this reverend who is, is dying of stomach cancer. I think. I believe that is what they have alluded to that it is stomach cancer. Yeah. They never like, explicitly say, they know uh, <laughs> like he's, he never goes to like, um, actually have like the tumor biopsied, but he definitely has like some sort of metastasizing tumors throughout his body. Yeah. Probably because he drinks a bunch that can't be helping. Probably not. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting how, like I said, it, it begins so small, goes up so big, and then just kind of becomes small again. It's it's not the way that a movie would usually frame itself. Should we the end way talk about? 
I, I mean, uh, I'm, you broke up for a second there. I, I'm saying I on that note, not not that we're done here, but should we jump to the end specifically to talk about, you know, maybe the last 15, 20 minutes? And yeah, uh, I think we should. I think that the thematic choices yeah, the it themes makes. of the movie tie so hard into that that I think that that's a sure. good place to jump off. So, like, at the end of this movie, um, it's the 250th anniversary. There's going to be a big celebration with the governor and the leader of the Abundant Life Ministry and also this guy, Bulk, um, who is the... He's, I, can't, I was trying to think if there was, like, a real-world analog for this guy. And the closest that I could get to was Coke, but I think that's just a name thing. But yeah, he is uh, Edward Balk. He's a big giver to the church, and he's also like the owner of like one of these movie industries that's just like, <laughs> we do everything. And it's the top sure. six polluter in like internationally. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and so he's going to be there. And so Ethan Hawke has decided that he is going to wear a suicide vest and uh, blow up the church and himself and all these people. And and then and then Mary shows up and he takes off the suicide vest and wraps himself in barbed wire and then puts his vestments on and then is about to drink Drano. And then she walks through the door and he drops the Drano and they embrace and kiss and the camera spins around them. And then the movie is over. She walks through the door that we as the audience know to be locked. Yes, because Cedric the Entertainer has already tried to go through it and has failed. Yeah. So let's, let's, I just want to rip the bandaid off. Michael Snydell, do you think that he killed himself and this is some sort of weird dying dream? Or do you think that like she miraculously got through the door? Uh, Okay. So, yeah, I'm still wrestling this one. I I don't think the kiss happens. Let me put it that way. I'm not sure whether I've decided whether he killed himself or whether he's in some type of, uh, you know, medicated. Well, I use the word medicated loosely. Medicated haze. Uh, But I don't think the kiss happens. But I think it's, you know, kind of a perfect button to push that this film that's entirely about uh, larger purposes ends with something that's entirely not about spirituality, but about personal satisfaction for that character. So I, I guess my point saying that is I'm, I'm not sure that I ever thought about the physical consequences as much as I was trying to hash out what this actually meant for the larger film and whether it was optimistic or pessimistic. Right. So I, I don't think the, the kiss happens but I'm not willing to say that it's the final uh, hallucination of a dying man. Right. And that's the theme is the most important part. And we will talk about those. But I just like I said, I want to rip the bandaid off and just get sure. fucking over with. So, <laughs> Jen, your thoughts, hallucinations of a dying man or did she actually get through the door? Well, you and I talked about this as we were leaving the theater um, after seeing it at the film festival. Um, I think that. I think it I think it happened um and allow me to explain why. I think that it was definitely real. Um Mary is the only person who Reverend Toller allowed to kind of witness some of like his his darkness and allow him to like 
or allow her to like help him heal, not by like outwardly like being vulnerable with her, but for someone that closed off who is actively like physically dying and also wrestling with his faith, just the act of allowing himself to be there for someone who he believes to be struggling through something worse than what he is, who he identifies with and who he wants to see succeed is like an act of vulnerability. And he kind of plays this like hard ass, like someone who's like thankful for having like this position, like nothing's wrong with me. I just want to serve the Lord kind of part with every other character in this movie. Um, definitely like since, you know, Cedric the Entertainer's character, like Pastor Joel is like pretty much like his boss. Um, you kind of see like this like employer employee dynamic that they have um, where like Joel kind of is very much his, his personal pastor um, and Reverend Toller very much puts on a, a kind of show for him um, throughout most of the film. But you never really see that with Mary. Um, I do think that it lines up thematically, but also in what, um, Schrader is attempting to say, I think, about not specifically religion, but faith in general and the faith of people and the way that the faithful view their own religion um, to have the kiss be real and to have her have actually gone through the door. Um, in my experience with, with Christianity and with Christians, you know, my, my family themselves are, are still practicing. Um, this this idea that like God's there to fix the little shit is really frowned upon. And you also see that show up in the movie earlier on whenever Reverend Toller's trying to explain that to one of the girls in the youth group where her dad is like definitely righteous, definitely devout. So why did he lose his job? And it's like, God isn't a band-aid fix for your tiny problems, even if you feel like they are world ending and crushing. But the moments when God is there occur whenever nothing else can be like there's nothing else you can do to fix the situation yourself there's there's no amount of faith or prayer that will will heal you or will heal the world um but god could fix this one thing and like if you you read the bible um most of the time he doesn't, but like some fucking times he just does. Like God just shows up weirdly and is like, Hey, I'm going to do this one thing because I fucking can, because I'm God. And I think this idea of like, um, a, a somewhat benevolent, but mostly apathetic kind of God that may or may not be able to forgive humanity for what we've done to his creation, randomly showing up just to save a miserable man from himself, maybe not even permanently, seems to be very much the the image of God that Schrader's created throughout the film. Um, and so I, I don't really have a problem thematically thinking that, that it did happen. Um, I also really like the idea that it did, just on a personal note. Um, I like the idea of everyone struggling to get through this door and only one person is able to do it. And it's the only person who's going to walk in and see him bloody and wrapped in barbed wire and, and respond with love. Um, I think that's a very optimistic, very kind interpretation. And it's one that I'll just kind of like choose to believe. <laughs> um, but I don't really have any like logical storytelling issues with it either. So Brian. Yeah, I think it happened. Um, so <laughs> I um 
I don't have much more to add. Uh, because when we first walked out, you thought that it didn't. And then I yeah, said... Yeah, we talked about it pretty extensively. I, yeah, I, and then I said basically everything that you just said. So apparently I'm very convincing. Um, Excuse you. Like, I agreed with you immediately and then expanded. I didn't just steal your idea. <laughs> you can fuck right off, my good sir. Um, I was just about to say that was really lovely, <laughs> everything she said. And now I'm thinking I'm a depressing person because I found such a negative interpretation yeah, from this I mean, sequence. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> that's, that's the way. I mean, shoot, we walked out and it was like, no, that definitely, see, like, especially knowing Schrader. But it's weird because, you know, not, not that we have to look at everyone's former work in order to understand what's going on currently, but like the end of the end of Taxi Driver finds Travis Bickle being hailed as a hero, but that's only because he wasn't able to, like, murder the guy who was running for president? Governor? Can't remember. I've never seen Taxi Driver. Oh, my God. Well, I know what we're doing today. So (laughs) Wow, all right. So... You don't have a choice, apparently. You fucking knew I'd never seen Taxi Driver. I know, but I block these things out. So anyway, I am... Why did you do that to me? So what what we're going to say is... Um, so it's just, it's a similar thing here where like, but instead of like public perception saving him, it it is like God, it is, it is this concept of, you know, like, like my wife was saying, uh, no one else can get through the door, but the one person who can pot, cause what are they going to do? Nothing good is going to come of it. But the one person who can like bring some goodness and grace into the world through being able to get into that door is able to get through. And I think that this movie does enough and wrestles with the concept of God enough to make it so that that kind of a minor miracle makes sense. Uh, at least to me. So yeah, I definitely think that, um, to move away from the questioning, the end of a Shyamalan or, or Nolan movie type of interpretation of this, uh, let's just talk about what, uh, what all this means. (laughs) So Michael Snydell, you had uh, wanted to use this as a jumping off point for themes and stuff. So why don't you uh, walk us through some of your mind work? Yeah, I just I find it really funny that you guys had such a gorgeous, <laughs> gorgeous view of this movie. And I just thought it was a cosmic lark <laughs> straighter laughing at our uh, at our own uh, wrestling with mortality. Do you? <laughs> so that says, that says a lot about me for some reason. I mean, do you think that's what Schrader does though? No, but I, for some reason, I think I, for the end of this movie, I think that I personally, my interpretation discarded the, the question or not the questions, but the, the like actual examples we see of grace and the, the examples we see of this kindness. Like it was interesting in, in the last thing you were talking, last thing you were talking about, Brian, I couldn't help but think of um, how Reverend Toller reacts the first time he goes to Mary and finds the best. And it, it's not one of, Oh, we need to call the authorities. It's his first reaction is, are you worried about how he will harm you? Like it's not, it's not this question of like, he thinks he's doing a public service. He recognizes that this person is, you know, feeling a deep sadness in the same way he has for years of his life and thought that the church was the, was the way in. So I, I think that 
I just find it, it yeah I can't get past that I conveniently just discarded the actual good that that relationship brings into the world of this film, especially when you consider, I I think it it, it was perhaps more difficult for me, especially when you consider the last 20 minutes of this movie uh, manages to be both totally formally in line with the rest of the movie, but also watching this descent with such uh clarity um i and i i i i'm getting away from your actual question i'm just rambling now but i think the what what i want to say about that end sequence is i i think again that um what was i going to say wonderfulness okay wonderfulness um that's an english word yeah, just the. I, I think I really like that end sequence for the way that. Um, oh, okay. Something we haven't talked about. Um, okay. It's the way this film is as much about being feeling a, a deep inner rot and sickness, and the way this film finds cycles between feeling better um, and feeling more run down and ragged and sick. And it's, you know, when he finds this, when he finds purpose, which in this case is, he believes, uh, putting the suicide bomb on, um, and, you know, killing Edward at, at bulk and the other people. Um, I, I think that the way this, that this one plays with, uh, sickness and health is something that, um, you don't, see treated uh so metaphysically so often so often like there's so many ways i think this film could just go off the deep end into like ponderous pretentiousness and i just don't think it ever does uh, and i think that that final scene as well was just kind of a, a perfect cap for that um that playfulness uh even before you get into the the themes of what Mary even represents. Yeah, because one of the things that we've talked about, but that you know we haven't gone into specifics about, is that playfulness. Uh, playfulness as exhibited in the scene where he tells Esther that her <laughs> someone who has seen this movie more recently than me, it's something like your pity is. What is it? It's, um, your pity is uh, nauseating. You are a constant reminder of my own weakness. You were a stumbling it's block. Failures. That you. Yeah. And then it immediately <laughs> cuts to him writing in his journal saying, I feel much better now. <laughs> and I just like, first of all, I've talked many times about my love of the moment in the movie shame where he like shakes his sister and is like, how are you helping me? You're a weight on me. And this movie had that same thing. And this, uh, this is actually, I think, the point that I made to you when we were walking uh, and pointing to my wife right now. This is not a visual <laughs> I, medium. I made to you, Jen, when we first <laughs> were walking out of the theater and you thought that it didn't happen. And I actually, that was my primary thrust, was the idea that she was the one person who was motivated by like an actual pure concern that wasn't like pity that wasn't something that was just going to drag him and slow him down and 
I think that it's an interesting it's an interesting like case for a movie like this to make that like there is a difference between like the types of support that you can offer someone and and the way that hers is is more meaningful or better than everyone else's. But um not to get too far away from the point that we were talking about which is how spry and funny this movie is which Bef- keeps it from feeling didactic. Before we navigate um, fully toward that. There was like one last thing I wanted to talk about, something that I noticed on my second viewing. Um, swear to God, it. this will be the last thing I'll say about it. Um, uh, I noticed that there's really only like two things that Reverend Toller picks up throughout this movie. Um, first being the suicide vest, the second being the barbed wire that he unwraps from the rabbit that has died in the cemetery of his church. Um, both of them come into play in that final scene where he dons a suicide vest sees Mary, removes it, wraps himself in barbed wire, and goes to commit suicide. And so there's like a super weird image that's created with that where it's like you can either be someone who takes action either against others who you feel have wronged you in the world and and God by extension and God's creation, or you can turn that violence inwardly and kill yourself. Um, Or your option is to just be another creature that is crushed by the wickedness of others. And that's a very like depressing nihilistic view. But I think that also checks out with like the way that Reverend Toller communicates with Michael and the way that he kind of navigates his own faith and his crisis of faith. Where in that conversation with Michael, he's saying, you know, I don't know what to tell you in terms of like how the world is going to be and what decision you should make in terms of your child. But I can tell you that, the pain of bringing a child into a broken world will never equal the pain of like taking one out of it. And that's not saying that there's no pain involved with bringing a life that you love into a world filled with suffering, but rather it's like the weighing of the two. And I feel like most of this movie is, is Toller weighing out those options um, and kind of choosing between two evils rather than ever allowing himself to see any beauty or grace And so he begins by being like the Michael-esque character who's going to turn that violence outwardly and then inwardly, and marries the thing that keeps him from doing that. And so his only other option in his brokenness is to instead become the rabbit who's just crushed by all of this wickedness. And because in his own mind, there's no hope or beauty or grace for him. And then she comes through the fucking door. So it's like, it's it was like this weird moment for me where as I was watching it initially, Michael, I too had that reaction of, well, that can't fucking happen because I'm naturally so much more inclined to despair, I think, um, than most people. Uh, I, I, I really got Michael's point of view through most of this. Um, even though he didn't get a whole lot of screen time, I thought he was... I mean, everyone's a compelling character, but like, I I might be like fully in love with this character for the rest of my life. Like, he was heartbreaking to watch, and um, so I like there was part of me that I don't think wanted the kiss to be real and her to have actually saved him from himself because in my head that's just so far outside of the realm of possibility. But I think the point of this movie is to show that regardless of what you view the realm of possibilities to be your interpretation is not the finite end-all be-all of someone else's ability to give grace and someone else's ability to save you when you're vulnerable. And um, I think when you view it like that, it becomes a little bit easier to read it as as possible and objectively true. 
And that will be the last long-winded thing I say about the ending of this film. I apologize. At least until Michael's done giving his point of view. <laughs> Any reaction to that, Michael? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, no, sorry. I'm a little, I, I'm a little speechless by both of your interpretation of this film. And now, now I guess I need to see it again. Yes, um, it, Michael. Oh my, be nice to him. <laughs> I don't have to be. I'm the host. But he's so nice. <laughs> No, it's just, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think again, I, I'm going to just make this all about me apparently. Yeah. There's just something, I, there's something about the interpretation of the final, uh, scene that I think went back and reinforced my own ideas about like this, like masochistic tedium of like, uh, suffering like that Toller is, is feeling. And I think that, um, that was something that I, I, I like I, I feel a deep uh, empathy <laughs> with it, it's the consuming the current of darkness, as he says that at one point when he's talking to Mary uh, right before a sequence that we'll have to talk about involving levitation. Um, <laughs> I, I think that like there is. I don't know. You guys have made me speechless. This is fun. I, I uh, just one, think one moment that... while we have a high five on Mike. <laughs> All right. Please tell me that got picked up. I don't know. I'll we'll put a sound out. effect in if it didn't. Can we make it an explosion sound effect if the skin clap wasn't there? You're just like, oh, hang on one second. Well, we have a high five on air. I'm just going to play the entirety of Panama. Um, anyway, Michael, you were trying to say, I was trying to say, I don't know what I'm trying to say. It doesn't help that it's, it's okay. I just want to say this. It is 97 degrees outside in Chicago. I am sitting in a room without air conditioning because I'm worried it's going to pick up on the mic and I only kind of feel like I'm going to pass out. So that could also be part of it, but that also might be my, uh, convenient excuse for why I am. There's always at a loss for words. Um, like a swell of maternal protectiveness over you. <laughs> so often. All right. Well, I'll, I'll give you a break. Okay, I can say something if you need. A yeah, go ahead. Okay, great. Um, another thing this movie kind of usefully shows the pointlessness of is um, extremity and extremism and like anger like it's um like one of the reasons why I thought that she made it through the door um and I only keep bringing it up even though I said I wasn't going to bring it up all the time is because it kind of becomes a uh, a Rosetta stone for everything is that everyone who tries to get through the door is in a kind of state of anger and everything that he's about to do to himself is in a sort of state of anger and you know, Michael is not you, Michael. Michael in the movie is super depressed, but he's also very angry. And that that teenager who yells at him when he tries to tell a girl that God doesn't owe her fucking father a job is angry in a very Trumpian kind of way. And the movie kind of makes the argument that anger is not one of the more useful emotions that one can feel at any given point. And I, I, I appreciated that a lot. 
um, the way that he, re- he he's talking after that moment with the teenager, he was just like, you know, everything is so immediate and extreme and like there's no room to like talk to anyone. And I feel like in that moment when that child yells at him and he says that, he, he realizes like the pointlessness and the uselessness of it. But the movie kind of then pushes him towards that. Yeah. But I think that at the end he he's pulled back and he finds like like he what like he basically comes to the understanding that was inherent in the argument he was making to Michael earlier in the movie and and like regenerates himself in a way through an embrace of like the possibility of hope not even hope itself but the possibility there could be hope and I think that that's a thread that is very intelligently woven through this film I think to further buttress your point about yeah, even uh, about that, you know, extremity is just, you know, for so much of the film, we're seeing this consuming depression and loneliness. And then you have, you know, the scene like where he's a very short scene where he's riding a bike with Amanda Seyfried. And it's, you know, it's shot in a very different way. It's shot uh, as if there's a camera on, you know, on the on the bike handlebars. And I know that's I know that's uh, harkening back to a few different uh cinematic signifiers but i can't remember them at the moment um but either way the the point is like that scene for instance in the same way that that end sequence as both of you have been talking about is such a salve for or solve for his uh his state of mind it's just being with someone else and not having to contend with his own you know demons and failures at you know in that in that dark room with his journal and his endless supply of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was very envious of how much whiskey this man was. Here. <laughs> um, let's talk about transcendental meditation and levitating over the world. Um, yeah, man, the magical mystery tour. How, how, how did we all feel about that? Let's start with Michael. I'm curious how your I, I, actually general question: How did your audience react to this movie in both cases? I think so. The I only saw it the one time um, at the Maryland Film Festival, and I'm always nervous seeing a movie like this out in, in the world, especially at a film Same. festival. Because like people <laughs> at a film festival fucking see anything. And this one was like one of the cornerstone things, but like people were into it, man. It was uh, it was funny because like they were laughing. Uh, luckily, we weren't sitting next to any of the blue hairs who will like talk through a whole movie. I'm sure we've all had <laughs> situations like that where there's like a, a group of seventy year olds and someone will walk on screen and they're like, "Oh, that's his brother, I think." Um, but anyway. <laughs> But so no, they were they were really into it, and there was a kind of. I wanted to find it as a perplexed, bemused stillness, during the the scene where everything gets kind of weird, the magical mystery tour, moment. Um, I don't know how they responded down at E Street Cinema on a Thursday night. I was a completely alone in the theater. Oh okay. <laughs> I was I was completely by myself. I took up three chairs. It was great. Were you laying down? Or- yeah, I was laying down and I propped myself up on my elbow and I loudly ate my M&M's. It was 
It was great. It was a wonderful film, <laughs> film going best, experience. The best film going experience of all time. Uh, Michael Snydell, what about your audiences? I, the first time I was in a, a theater with all critics, uh, screening privilege. Um, and that was like, I, I, I am super curious about this one because fucking pure critic screenings, those guys are assholes. <laughs> They are some of the worst audiences that I have ever been a part of. Like, I went to a Terrence Malick film, and it was all critics. It was like there were 20 of us in the room, also at E Street, uh, Landmark E Street Cinema in Washington, D.C. Um, and they were fucking assholes during that whole movie. I think it was Do the Wonder. And they were just, like, loudly scoffing and, like, making comments out loud. So, like, were they were they cool for you? Was that when we saw Night of Cups together? No. Oh, okay, because we saw, also saw that at East Street, and, like, half the theater left in the middle. Oh, yeah. No. Remember that? I, so they were, they were an asshole during To the Wonder, they were an asshole during Night of Cups, and then they were also, like, kind of mean during Neon Demon. But I think that movie was mean to them back. But Michael Snydell, <laughs> first reform, critic screening. How much yeah, did yeah. they suck? No, they they didn't. I mean, there were a few people who were like, all right, that's the ending, I guess. Like, they didn't say that, but like, that's their body language. But I would say more than 60% of the people stayed through the entire credits. Oh, that's good. Um, so, yeah. And then I, I saw it today uh, with uh, in a regular theater with regular people. And I was very worried that I had a blue hair. Uh, as you were saying, because this person, while we were watching the trailer, after every trailer, this person had an obvious comment, <laughs> and I was like, I, I looked over at, I looked over at my girlfriend, and I'm like, if this happens during the movie, I might kill a man, and uh, <laughs> thankfully, I I am not in jail right now. Uh, yeah, man, I am saying a lot of really bad things on this podcast. Um, yeah, so I didn't kill anybody. Michael Snydell, not a murderer, but does support terrorists. <laughs> not a murderer yet. Not also, a, pending. Murder's pending. For all the FBI agents listening, Michael Snydell of Chicago. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was, it was a good crowd for the most part, but people had no idea whether to laugh. I'd say they were like, less than 10 people like there was a good number of people in the theater and i'm going to say less than 10 people were willing to laugh when things were morbidly funny <laughs> like well one of one of my favorite lines is right after uh toller sees michael's dead body and he's talking to the policeman and he goes oh i i knew his father and toller goes oh what's he like and and he's like oh he, he's uh he's a businessman morbid son of a bitch <laughs> <laughs> like I, I love, I love that line. There's a lot of other ones like that, and I love the fact that Schrader seemingly for no reason, the next cut is to that policeman at the door after you know he said something. Just after he said the morbid son of a bitch line at the door, walking away as he's giving um, condolences to Mary's character, and there's no reason that Schrader had to like do this quick shot in front of the house. <laughs> But I just love that, like, after he just said something, like, really insensitive, then they just show him giving condolences to Mary. <laughs> it's just, like, it's a great little, like, tragicomic thing. Um, 
Yeah, and my point was like my audience did not know whether to laugh, and they had no fucking idea what to do with that ending. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the ending was difficult for people to like scan. I think at first, which is why everyone stayed, and then everyone asked dumb festival Q and A questions to the poor actor. That was my first oh my ever Q and A, and I was so upset. Like I got like embarrassed for the people. You like, you was... got the best. You got you got the so it's just the actor and there were people who were asking about the direction and the writing, and then there was the person who spoke Put for me out of my minutes. misery because he was an aspiring writer, and uh you know it was it was it was great it was really great there were yeah. like some really cringe my favorite questions. my favorite was the woman who like spoke for like three minutes and then said what about you and you just turned <laughs> to me and said was that wasn't a question and I said yeah I know welcome to the festival Q and A. <laughs> But I think I think that it's so it's weird because the way that that whole scene is done you know they're laying on first of all they're laying on the floor her on top of him which is just like I that's a very strange thing to do and then they start levitating and your initial thought process is oh okay now it's going to get weird but then <laughs> they start floating over like landscapes and stuff and you're just like oh it's very twin peaks the return yeah it's such a like for a movie that for so long is is like the camera is fucking riveted in place and all these people are just like having normal conversations and it's very clearly the real world to suddenly have this happen like sort of knocks you out of your complacency in a way that like i would usually have an issue with in a movie but at this point, I was so on board that I didn't really mind. But, like, I still think back on that. And I'm just like, the ballsiness to put this in your movie and then yeah. not ever comment on it again. Yeah. Is is pretty, that's pretty fucking intense, Paul Schrader. But good for you. No, I really liked that a lot. Um <coughs> Mainly because it was, like, just an incredibly, like, ballsy, beautiful shot. But I also really liked some of, like, the very... Uh, I guess evocative visual storytelling that was going on with that, where you constantly like you're following, you know, Toller around who just seems to be in this complete pit of despair while also like attempting to help someone who he feels to be in danger of his own despair. So it's like a very much like a blind, like the blind leading the blind scenario. Um, and then Mary is like the only person who offers him like any kind of like grace or, accepts his vulnerability or he feels like is actually actively creating a better world with him from like a pure good place rather than something motivated by like darkness or pity. Um, But that doesn't fix everything. Um, And I think that's something that's really important to discuss, not only in terms of this movie, but in terms of life Mm. in general, Um, you encounter people who will make your life better and easier and more wonderful, but shit will still suck. Um, both existentially and specifically, like if you are the type of person who feels an immense sense of existential and spiritual dread based around what man has done to God's creation, finding someone who you vibe with, isn't going to erase that. And I think that that's, 
a very healthy thing that this film points out that it, it, it would have been very easy for Mary's character to become like a very empty foil for Toller's kind of um, existential awakening and like his healing, but rather than allow her to be like kind of the shell of a person, it without reveling in her brokenness or focusing too much on her, like kind of highlights in that magical mystery tour, like, Hey, like things are better now. And it's better when you have a person who you can experience this kind of grace and healing with, but that's not going to fix the problem. And that seems to be the kind of thing that this movie leaves up to interpretation. Like, Oh, you know, is, is the fix like God in like a more like, um, liberated sense or is it like specifically organized religion or is it active protest or is it like a suicide bombing like that it doesn't necessarily like land on an answer to that question but it begins the conversation of like hey things will continue to be wrecked until we fix it and finding someone who heals you is only going to help you get better at fixing these problems that will still be there um Though he is going to have to reckon with the fact that he's wrapped in barbed wire. Oh, yeah, 100%. That is, like, the only thing I can think about at the end of the movie the first time watching it. I was like, but you are, like, fucked now. <laughs> One of the things that we haven't really brought up, and I don't know that we 100% have to, because we've already brought up how depressed and dying he is, is the fact that his son passed away oh, and yeah. that that destroyed his marriage. Wait, I, I, I'm sorry. Can I... Can I uh, interject real quick with one thing that I I, I do want to say about the ending um, that I think does – okay, this is a weird thing. But I I think part of the reason I don't like if that final scene is real is I like how much of the connection between Mary and Reverend Toller feels deeply platonic. Um, The fact that – their connection and that vibing that Jen is talking about does feel spiritual and physical, but not in a way that needs to be consummated in like, not, I don't want to say cliched ways, but there's, you know, there's a different movie that could be made here, obviously about a more explicitly romantic relationship between uh, Mary's character and Reverend Toller's character. And I think there is something a little bit disappointing to me about leaving behind that platonic for something that is more romantic in that final scene. And I just wondered if either of you had a comment on that. I have a comment on it. Uh, When I first heard about this movie, I was deeply concerned that this would be a movie about a man of faith who is like drawn into a tawdry affair and like, sure. you know, Oh no, he's challenged from God now because of this. And like, I hate, it's one of those really easy plots that I'm not interested in. So I was really excited throughout this movie, how platonic everything was, but how like meaningful it was. But I think I like the, like, especially because, like, when they first laid down, I was like, man, if they start making out and then have sex, I'm going to fucking hate this. But they didn't. Oh, for sure. But I like the fact that they didn't and they existed so long in that kind of platonic, um, platonic, like, not really a friend space, but like, you know, the, just like a spiritual. It's like a pleasant star system where they're kind of like (laughs) feeding off each other and glowing brighter because of one another. And then that, that just kind of like erupts into like an ex 
ecstatic outburst of affection. Like in my conception of like the continuing adventures of Reverend Toller and Mary, I don't really see them as like getting married and having kids. I see them as like just like being near one another and like loving each other, but like probably maybe never even kissing again. But just like this having been a moment of like his lowest point and her finding him in it and then them not having another way to express how much they mean for one another. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Jen, does that make sense to you? Ditto. Okay. <laughs> um, I will, you know, as I just completely devalued my own critical opinion just now, um, I will say <laughs> that initially, um, Michael, I had a very similar reaction um, after I had conceded in conversation with Brian that um, I could thematically justify the kiss having actually happened. Um, I did feel slightly disappointed because I feel like we don't get to see enough platonic, healthy um, relationships uh, based around, like, you know, people of the opposite sex. Like, so much so that, like, it's really prevalent in our culture, the the belief that men and women can't just be friends. Um, So I was really proud of this movie for so delicately showing a healthy, deep, fulfilling, emotional relationship between a man and a woman who weren't attached, who seemingly felt nothing romantic toward each other. Um, But at the same time, I felt that my disappointment in the relationship becoming overtly romantic was 100% outweighed by the overarching thematic point I thought it made that um, near the end. Um, So it was like, yes, a loss for me, but like not nearly as much of a loss as it was a win. Uh, for completely different reasons. And I didn't really hold those as like mutually exclusive. Like if it was, you know, if if they were going to be romantically involved in the movie was going to end that way with the kiss objectively happening, then it also sucked because it had to get romantic. Um, I also do really like Brian's idea of like the two like binary stars, like feeding off of each other. Um, and yeah, no, I, I do, I, I guess I'm going to come like hard in the middle between you guys for the most part where I did sense that kind of, disappointment in myself um but it didn't kill it for me any response michael no i i i think that's very fair um yeah i just uh i I think that was another component to my interpretation of the ending um and i think see it's i i'm i'm now nitpicking but like why did they have to kiss? Why couldn't they just embrace? I, apparently, I really wanted this to be a platonic relationship. But like like Jen says, I think I'm craving the fact that so many movies these days have to, you know, are predicated on the idea that if people have a, you know, uh, a bond, that it has to be sexual or romantic. As, as a married woman whose best friend is a man it is deeply frustrating to constantly encounter that in like in all forms of like art and also just like my life with people um is really frustrating because it's like oh yeah we can't just be two people who have an emotional connection that is fully predicated on us being similar people and that is literally it well yeah i mean i have the same thing like whenever a female friend like will text me Whenever one female friend that I have who actually texts me, texts me. (laughs) I was waiting for that. I was waiting for that so hard. (laughs) I get texts from three people 
one of whom is my entire family who has a group text, so I count them as one person. Oh my God. Um, and the other is a female friend who sometimes, like, wants to chat with me. And, like, yeah, it's annoying because, like, every movie, if anyone other than your significant other texts you, it's like, oh, my God, this person's having an affair. So, like, <laughs> I, I, you know, I would love in this in this moment of, you know, diversity in film and, and showing different kinds of relationships for us to, like, move beyond the fact that if there's a man and a woman in a film, they have to either be romantically involved or trying to murder one another. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't have a problem with the kiss because it, at, the, at that moment, it's so crazy and everything is so nuts. And I just, like I said, like I think that it is entirely possible for that to be, I use the term ecstatic in its like most extreme definition of like an almost like, ravenous incomprehensible expression of joy and so like it that doesn't it doesn't really matter like you know in in fucking old russian novels that i read all the time people are constantly bursting into tears hugging one another and kissing one another because like that's just what you had to do to get those feelings out and it wasn't a problem and so you know i i was able to kind of read it that way like i said i don't think that they're gonna like get a house together and get married it certainly lines up with past schrader too and like there's a there's a great clip out there of uh, schrader has talked many a time about brisson's pickpocket and i think speaking about the last scene in pickpocket um which he's literally said he's stolen it for every one of his movies, which is just, I, I kind of love when directors just are that outright about it. it he, I think he uses pretty much the exact wording you just used, Brian, this idea of like these people that have been so uh, confined with their own spaces who are finally just given this burst of emotion. And, you know, I, there's, there's one uh, throwaway line I love in the movie uh, where Toller says something along the lines of in his inner monologue. So often people ask for an experience when what they just want is emotion. And I thought that was just a, a gorgeous line um, that I couldn't help but but think about um, as, you know, the film kind of continues and his, you know, larger sense of personal purpose uh it becomes less about, you know, trying to do some greater good and more about his own dissatisfaction with the world. We've been talking for over an hour and 40 minutes. Uh, We should probably wrap up. Does anyone have any final thoughts or like a final random scene they want to talk about before we get out of here? Michael? Uh, No, I just talked. Someone else go. (laughs) Genevieve? Um... I don't think that I, I could I could go on seemingly forever. I don't think that there is anything that I have not said yet that I feel comfortable ending on fully um, without just like continuing to speak endlessly. I will leave us, uh, in my opinion, with um, my favorite line in this movie being um, when Reverend Toller is recording in his journal, he says something to the effect of, Despair is a sin of pride so prevalent that it refuses to acknowledge that God is more creative than we are. (laughs) And that is the funniest and most horrifying thing I've ever heard in my life, having grown up in church. It's just, it was, I saw through my mind every single minister that I have ever had 
in my mind. It just like just played in like one like solid second where I was like, oh my god, this is accurate, very accurate representation. <laughs> yeah, and I um, I'll leave us with the indelible image of Toller sitting down to lunch in the cafe, the in-house cafeteria of this megachurch. With uh, scripture written behind them talking about people selling their houses and giving everything they had to other people. Um, which is is probably like... If, if, this, if, like, if this were the Will Ferrell, Adam McKay, dumb, mean-spirited, overt comedy, that would be annoying as fuck. But in this movie, given how much depth and feeling and emotion and thought is put into everything, I found it A, more believable, and also B, a lot more funny. So yeah, that is First Reformed, the newest film from writer-director Paul Schrader. It is out in theaters now from A24, so go and check it out. It is a fantastic movie that all of us greatly enjoyed, and it sounds like uh, you can expect it. We're about halfway into the year. Uh, you can expect it to show up on all of our uh, top tens, unless somehow the next six to seven months are a lot better than the five to six months that preceded. My God, I hope so. I mean, I'm, I'm personally pretty stoked for both American Animals and Beneath the Silver Lake. So, And um, the Sister Brothers. And the Sister Brothers. Oh, my God. That looks great. Yeah, so... Um, Michael is being conspicuously quiet. I don't look forward to anything. Okay. <laughs> oh, honey. You know, no, I despair can't. is a sin. <laughs> Something, something. Coming God out. is more creative than us. Um, so that's it for today. Uh, let me remind everyone to go to patreon.com slash the film stage show and give us your money. Uh, don't forget also to take advantage of our free 30 day trial of movie that is available to all of our listeners. Movie, the online streaming cinema, every day a new film, you have 30 days to watch, which means that you are constantly incentivized to not just watch the same shit all over again. Also, their restricted uh, menu means they can have one of the cleanest, nicest-looking interfaces on the internet of any kind of streaming service. Don't miss Christopher Nolan's following his first film, as well as uh, that other film, uh, The Girl Who Sold the Sun, from the director of Tukibuki, as well as Nostalgia, in case you need some Soviet cinema in your life to celebrate the series finale of The Americans, which for some reason I'm also going to plug right now, this Wednesday on FX. Um, that's uh, that's it. Oh, wait, no, I didn't tell you how to get your movie free 30 days. Go to mubi.com slash film stage and you can get a free 30-day trial of movie. So that is all. Uh we will be coming at you with another episode pretty much right after this one, and that will be on the HBO film The Tale, which premiered at Sundance, was bought by HBO Films, and premiered uh, Saturday night. And uh, we will have Allison Shoemaker on for that. Woo! I was about to say, I'll just insert some applause here. And, she's in, um, she's so, on like 27 different podcasts these days. She <laughs> does too much, <laughs> but we're always glad when she Agreed. can make time for us as well. Um so that is it. That is all for today. Uh, we will be talking about the tale, and then possibly while I am on vacation, we can squeeze out another episode or so. Until then, let's tell the fine people where we can be found between now and the next time. Let's start with my beautiful wife, Genevieve Rowan. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Rowan My Boat, 
Um, sometimes I talk about horror movies. I actually just updated my Letterboxd uh, Netflix horror list for the first time in forever. Um, the Ritual, it didn't suck. Uh, you watched that without me? I definitely watched it God without you. It. No. <laughs> it, 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 it didn't suck. Um, it did that thing that I don't like that sometimes movies do whenever they want to be really edgy, which is plug Elder Futhark runes in North, Norse mythology, one of which is my direct heritage, the other of which is integral to my faith. So they almost always do it wrong, and it is brutally annoying um because like it's, the witch it's like yeah it's like the two, they pick the two things i care about and i only care about like five things so like they had such a limited selection and they went for two of them anyway um but yeah i'm I, outside of horror movies i occasionally tweet out pictures of latte art because i'm a super dope ass barista and so if you ever want to see some some swans in cups or as brian and i like to say put a bird in the cup um yeah you can follow me on twitter be dope <laughs> Michael Snydell. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Snydell. You know, I have lately not been watching anything I'm supposed to. I've been watching a lot of horror films like Chopping Mall and <laughs> oh, uh, fucking Nightmare on Elm Street 3. And yeah, actually, I've probably going to watch Nightmare on Elm Street 4 soon. Uh, but yeah, sometime I'll get back to movies in 2018. Um yeah, I'm I'm on Twitter. I forgot what I was saying. It's so hot in this apartment. <laughs> oh, okay. Find <laughs> Michael on Twitter at Snydell. Okay. Um and uh yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Brian J. Rowan. I've started posting on Instagram again because I got a camera for my birthday. And uh Yeah, so find me on Instagram at Brian J. Rowan. I guess that's a thing now. Uh letterboxed the same. Writing and stuff over at thefilmstage.com and my personal site, dearfilm.net. And, um, yeah, that's good enough. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us, and tune in next time. <laughs>